for the week of September 25th, 2022, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 595, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And on the planet Canary, I'm Michael Giltz. You know, every week at some point, what is Canary now? I, I honestly, and now for our listeners, for those of you who think that Michael tells me what he's going to say ahead of time, he, he doesn't. So every week it's something new. And now I, ha- I didn't look up what Canary is. So I'm never going to figure this out. So you're not watching the Star Wars series Andor with Diego Luna. No, I haven't watched any of the Star Wars series. Well, there you go. Well, we'll talk more about it later, but actually, I'm in front of the Securities and Exchange Commission building in New York City because breaking news as we come on the air, the Uh-oh. SEC has filed filed an action. It's taking action against three former execs for violating security law violations when they were at MoviePass. They are filing a complaint against Ted Farnsworth, Mitch Lowe, and Khalid Itum in New York federal court. Farnsworth was CEO, and when they acquired MoviePass, the company he was at, Lowe was MoviePass the CEO, and Etum was a business development exec for the service. And they say in the SEC complaint that they intentionally and repeatedly disseminated to the public materially false or misleading statements concerning MoviePass and key aspects of MoviePass's business model, to which I would say that sounds pretty accurate. At the time, you're like, no, this isn't true. That's not true. So this is not involving the people who have taken back control of MoviePass. That's a separate no, person. No, but I mean, it can't be good. It can't be a good, like, well, you know. His, he wasn't doing their, their dishonest no, business no, practice, no. what is alleged to be dishonest business. The SEC alleges they lied about how MoviePass could become profitable. And then when faced with dubious finances, they opted to surreptitiously curb heavy use of the service instead of coming clean. That's when we reported that again and again. People were like, how come my pass isn't working? I was supposed to be. And they changed the rules every week, you know, without telling you. So, you know, that's a serious complaint. But again, it's, it, does it sully the name of MoviePass? I guess, but there already was a problem being. People knew it had crashed and burned and that it, you know, things were changing minute by minute towards the end. And then it was all crazy. You know, I don't think this really affects the, the, the new people. I think they have a, a very Hail Mary chance of doing anything anyway. So, but yes, this is uh, the roosters coming home. Chickens coming home to roost for the people who were in charge of movie pass and all that craziness that we covered at the time. I will say this though. It does explain why Mitch Lowe, who, who emailed me personally to oh. ask, if, uh, if I wanted to interview him for the release of his book, uh, which is being released, I think it was just released. It's his Yeah, memoir. yeah, ba- ba- it is just out. So bad, uh, bad, no publicity is bad publicity. That's what they say. <laughs> well, he, I he said, sure, you know what? I'll take you up on that offer. And I emailed him twice and he didn't uh, respond. <laughs> I guess this is why. And he, he emailed me with his personal phone number so I could pick up the phone and call him and say, hey, Mitch, how's it going today? Oh, dear. So he's not having a good day. Yeah, I guess not. Probably uh, won't call him, by the way. Um, no, we don't want to talk to him now. He, he shouldn't talk now. Um, the book is called Watch and Learn, How I Turned Hollywood Upside Down with Netflix, Redbox, and Movie Pass: Lessons in Disruption by Mitch Lowe uh, from perhaps prison number 40 <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> prison cell 48 yeah prison cell 48 cell block uh, i'm trying to think of the elvis uh you know jailhouse rock but i couldn't think of it um well that's that's no good but uh, you know you cover stuff all the time and you know there's breaking news last week just as we finished the show we were making fun of 
the trades for plugging every single actor cast in every single project. I don't need 10 emails about every single movie and TV show being made. They keep doing it. They're clogging up everybody's email. I don't think anybody other than maybe a casting director cares at that level. And it happened while we were just finished the show. We got another email about Gran Turismo. Another one saying they've cast Darren Barnett of the Mindy Kaling show, that streaming show to be in Gran Turismo, a movie based on, on uh, on a video game, and of course, months after denying it was a done deal, NBC is bringing back the Golden Globes on January 10th, and you cover more serious stuff with the CJ Summits, don't you? Don't you have a new CJ Summit this week? Uh, we have one next week, actually. Next week oh. is going to be Comscore of all people. Oh, so, cool! Yeah, and they're going to be talking about uh, some of the some of the numbers and and uh, metrics and analytics behind the theatrical market and what we've experienced this year and what they believe will be the future, uh, the near future and distant future of the theatrical space. And where can people sign up for that? Uh, they could go to cjcinemasummit.com and they could sign up there. It's free. Uh, and if you sign up and you can't attend live, uh, then you get an email saying, oh, here's a link to the recording. Uh, if you attend live, then you get to ask questions because of course it's interactive and it's, you know, like, and, uh, and that's why you won't let me attend. Michael, no, no, shut up. Go- Michael, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, you know, I can tell you why the NBC deal is happening. And uh, money I think to, it's, there's money to be made. Well, I think it's uh, a legal thing. So the, the Golden Globes, actually, Dick Clark Productions puts on the Golden Globes, had a deal with NBC to broadcast until 2026. So another, actually, I think another six years. So whatever it is from this date, it's another six years. And uh, of course, NBC is like, yeah, we don't want to do that. So here's what we'll do. We'll give you one more year and that will give you a chance to shop it around to other people and they could take the contract off our hands. Or if you know what, it does really, really well. If it does really well, then we'll maybe talk about airing it ourselves. And what are you basing this on? Is this just a supposition? Oh, I haven't haven't seen that in any of the reporting. I must have not read it very deeply. No, it's all the newsletters that I get. So there's tons of, you know this, Michael, there's tons of the Ankler and there's tons of newsletters now that basically, it's basically, uh, you know, entertainment journalists who for years have tons of sources who just call up all their friends when something like this happens and goes, oh, is that what's going on? Okay, I'll put it in my newsletter. And so it's, that's, that's essentially right. what, where I'm getting that. Well, that's the sort of inside dirt I love to hear. What else are we going to talk about on Showbiz Sandbox this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are celebrating because the pandemic, according to Joe Biden, it is over, baby. Woo-hoo, woo. Yeah. Well, <laughs> sort of, sort of. You know, movie exhibitors say, great, but will audiences return? Well, the heads of Sony Picture Classics believe in theatrical. But they also say movie theaters have a lot of work to do. We'll discuss. I'll also dive into uh, Google's plans to take on Dolby in the consumer market and whether they'll have any more luck than Samsung. And when Michael gets a confused look on his face, and you can see it, how? Because this is an audio thing. But uh, I'll explain why. And it has all to do about open source video codecs. So I guess I'm going to have to explain what that is. A week after the premiere of Thursday Night Football on Amazon, we finally got the overnights. And what's up with that, Michael? What do you think that, I think it's just they were trying to like promote the new, you know, they, they released it exactly one week after. So it's like, hey, here are the ratings. And by the way, it's on tonight. But anyway, on Inside Baseball, we'll talk about music, 
which talking about music is kind of like dancing about architecture, but we'll try anyway. We've got mid-year numbers on revenue for the industry with vinyl still going strong, two bills in Congress that would have a big impact on terrestrial radio, and a story in Billboard about payola still being a big problem. And that must be why my new single never charted. That's got to be the reason. Payola. I'm not that's paying it. anybody that's, to play. That's it. That's it. It was yeah. a great song. Yeah. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. And what's old is new again. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world. For the week ending September 25th, we include all seven days from Monday to Sunday because movies make money seven days a week. Why only count the weekend? And we have a link to ComScore in our show notes, the people that will be guesting on Sperling CJ Summit next week. Make sure you check that out. And the number one movie around the world is our old friend Avatar. If you were wondering if Avatar, The Way of Water, whatever the new movie is called, is there excitement and interest in that movie? Avatar came out 13 years ago. That's a long time to have a sequel, much less, is it four sequels or three sequels lined up one after the other? Uh, There's a theme parks devoted to Avatar. Yes, it was the biggest film of all time, but Matrix was a big movie and nobody cared about the sequels, plus they weren't very good. So very, very scary bet. So re-releasing Avatar in a new 4K print, if print is the right word, a digital print, spiffing up the audio, doing everything they can, including footage of the new movie. People showed up. $31 million around the world for the highest grossing movie of all time, a movie everyone has seen and can watch in their homes whenever they want. But like we said last week, there's a whole generation of kids who never got to see it in the theater. They get to don the 3D glasses for two hours and 45 minutes not counting the extra footage. You know, I actually went and saw uh, a screening of this. So it was a screening of, uh, you know, in, in, uh, at LA Live, which has great 3D, a uh, huge auditorium, and uh, Real D did a, a presentation there. You know, they, they invited some people, mostly influencers, by the way. I did notice a lot of TikTok people there doing their little TikToks in the lobby. Oh, there you go. Uh, and I have to say, as you know, Michael, I'm like another three hour movie about blue people. Like, seriously, do we really need that? Uh, and I thought this is not going to work. But I have to say, I had forgotten how darn good the 3D was. It was really good in that movie. And they really they did uh, this variable frame rate thing where some of the shots are in high frame rate to make it look better in in shots that have a lot of action. And as you know, I'm incredibly dubious about this movie, both Avatar and the new one. And yet, and yet, I was kind of like halfway through, I was like, oh, you know, actually, I get it. I, 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 I get it. I could see this working a little bit. Well, that was interesting. They said that they used the, the sped up high frame rate for select moments in the movie where it wouldn't pull you out or make stuff that was digital or whatever strange seem more real to you. And they used it very sparingly. So that was interesting. They did. And I, by the way, two hours and 45 minutes, which made me look at the current top 10 top grossing movies of all time. Avatar, Avengers Endgame. Avengers Infinity War, Titanic, The Avengers. These are all long movies. Then you think back in the past, Gone with the Wind, The Sound of Music. These are not 90-minute movies, two-hour movies. People always talk about, oh, movies have to be shorter. They can't gross as much. 
Simply not true. If the movie is good, people will watch it. Uh, but that's the number one movie around the world, $31 million. And number two is Don't Worry, Darling, $30 million. That is the biggest new movie of the week around the world. It's the number one movie in North America. Harry Styles, of course, is one of the stars of the movie, along with Florence Pugh and directed by Olivia Wilde in her second film. It's a solid opening. The movie cost $35 million to make. It grossed $30 million. We'll have to see how word of mouth is now. Based on the critics, the word of mouth won't be very good. I think there was a bit of a drop uh, more than you would hope for from Friday to Saturday. We know Saturday's a longer day and all that. But uh, it's a pretty cool week for Harry Styles. His song, As It Was, a great song. Uh, number one for 15 weeks now on the Billboard Hot 100. Only three songs in history have been on top for more weeks than As It Was. He's like the, the top soul person with no guest stars on the song, the top person who's British, the top solo, per, I mean, all sorts of uh, records. But, you know, the fourth longest running song of all time, 15 weeks at number one, and it's not done yet. And, and it's not associated with the movie. It's not like a movie and soundtrack pegged together where it's still a big achievement. But nonetheless, I'm sure Elvis has had the number one movie of the week along with the number one soundtrack. Prince had it, you know, uh, with Purple Rain. But here it is, Harry Styles, a number one song and a different number one movie and another one on the way. You know, my daughter went to see this movie because of Harry Styles, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, and, and what did she I, say? I couldn't believe it. She went opening night. Uh, and I was like, wait, you're going to see that movie? Why? Uh, There's like, nudity. No, I don't know. I'm not saying that. Sorry. I shouldn't I, say I, that. I, no, solely, solely because of Harry Styles. Uh, she gets yeah. back. I'm like, so how'd you like it? I could tell. She was like, ah, you know, I... It was, I'm like, it was too complicated for its own good. Yeah, that's the way to say it. Like, I was like, okay. Um, you know, and I, I read something last week uh, about whether, about all the hubbub. And I know we talked about this last week uh, around Olivia Wilde and all the, the controversy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the person said, look, either she is a genius and has figured out no, a way no, no, to make no. people. No, 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 no. This was or, all organized. No, no, no. That's. Let me finish. So they said, or she's completely, you know, has no self-awareness that she's destroying her own movie. No, both of those are, are obnoxious. Just, oh yeah. That, directors act up and things happen all the time. It's got, it wasn't a plan, nor is she destroying her movie. The movie opened, it, she delivered the movie. It didn't get very good reviews in the festivals, but she delivered an opening weekend. And that's, you can't ask much more than that. The studio and, and, and Olivia Wilde did their job. Her first movie was good. She'll probably make other good movies as well. She hasn't done anything remotely that would say, oh, this crazy person, we can't work with her. No. Please. All right. Number three around the world is The Woman King with Viola Davis, another $19 million that's at $40 million worldwide. People are talking about prequels and sequels. Like, whoa, whoa, let's wait to see how well the movie does at the box office. It's starting to match its... its um, Oh, you know, it's budget of $50 million, but it's got a long way to go. It also has a lot of markets to go. So, you know, and we'll have to see how it does. Julie Roberts and George Clooney are doing pretty good. Their romantic comedy, Ticket to Paradise, made $16 million this week. It's at $31 million worldwide with a lot more to come. Uh, Give Me Five or Hey Bro, that Chinese comedy, that's a riff on Back to the Future. That made another $10 million this week. That's at $46 million worldwide uh that's it for movies grossing more than 10 million dollars one two three four five movies in all and then we've got about another five movies that made eight million dollars and above brahmastra part one shiva top gun maverick dc league of super pets barbarian that horror flick and bullet train all made about eight to nine million dollars 
I don't think there's any news among any of them particularly. And scrolling down, Moo Man is chugging along. We got some new info on New Gods Yang Jian, uh, which is a which is a, a a Chinese animated film that made four million dollars this week, or at least it's. Total grosses of $70 million is $4 million more than the last time we heard about this movie. One or two of them fell off our radar, and it's not always easy to figure out what's going on there. Um, same thing with Table for Six, the Hong Kong family comedy, and Song of Spring, a Chinese film. Neither of them is setting the world on fire. They've both made about $10 million at the box office total. So there's no big news there. But we do know China had a really slow week. There's still shutdowns in China, which is probably the number two movie market in the world right now. That's what we'd have to say. And we do have October 1st coming. Next Saturday, October 1st, is China's National Day. Normally, that would be a big weekend, holiday, lots of big movies coming out. I don't think there's as much excitement this year. There's not as much product, and there's still so many shutdowns that I think some exhibitors or some producers are a little wary of trying to take advantage of that. But it's at least something for the Chinese market to look forward to. Certainly, one thing everyone can look forward to is dinosaurs. Jurassic World Dominion has finally, quietly, passed the $1 billion mark. I feel like roaring. <laughs> you should, you should. Do you feel about roaring with approval or disapproval about the guys at the head of Sony Pictures Classics? Michael Barker and Tom Bernard have been there for ages. I interviewed them 100 years ago. They've been doing a great job then. They're doing a good job now. They're people you know, if you give them your movie, you can trust them to nurture it, treat it with care, and eke out every penny that they possibly can from your film. They're not going to be able to open it up on 3,000 screens and, and hit, hit some mass, but if they can make money, slow and steady, they will do it. And you know if they make money, you'll make money. You can trust them, and you know they will treat your movies with attention and care. So they have a great reputation. And they were holding court at the Zurich Film Festival, and they said two big things. One, they sort of chided exhibitors. They said, come on, guys, do a better job with, with all your information. You got all these people coming to your movie. You should have email contacts for them. Why aren't you doing things like, hey, I want to know everybody in Minneapolis who's seen an Almodovar film. I want to send a, a targeted ad to them. You should be able to do that. And they think that exhibitors need to do a much better job of digital advertising, digital marketing, reaching out to their audiences. Uh, what do you say? It sounds obvious to me, and I, I know it's hard, I guess, for some of them to do. Certainly the big chains, they're trying to do it. Are the little chains doing a good job, or can they just not afford to? You know, I think it's this middle tier that's actually doing quite well. I know National Amusements, for instance, here in so Showcase Cinemas, uses Movio, uh, and this is a, a service that is a marketing behind the scenes, uh, and they combine loyalty. Uh, so, for instance, you're a loyalty member of AMC, Michael. That's so right. They, they'll use the movies that you've seen as a loyalty member, and they'll combine it with special newsletters and special emails that go to you that say, hey, Michael, you've never seen a horror movie. So guess what? We're not going to talk to you about a horror movie. We're going to talk to you about this other movie that we know you've seen like five other movies that are just like that. Uh, and so they kind of personalize these emails that go out for these exhibitors. Uh, and it's a service that you have to pay for as an exhibitor. If you're AMC, they haven't gotten that personalized yet. They're, they're, they're close. Uh, they're, you know, they're a big, broad marketing group. You know, they, they have to market to millions of people. And so rather than personalize it, they basically say, here's what's opening this week. I don't know if they've gotten as personalized as saying, hey, Michael, uh, you know, we'll put the horror movie down at the bottom of this email because we know you never see horror movies. So here's a, hey, don't worry, darling. You like to see those kinds of festival films. Here's one. I don't know if they've gotten that 
that uh, mm-hmm. granular. But that said, there's lots of smaller exhibitors. And I would say a good, I don't know, 15, 20,000 screens. Like ha- half of the screens in the country are, are medium and small exhibitors, right? Yes, that cannot they don't have loyalty programs, or if they have a loyalty program, it doesn't collect all the data, uh, or they're in, in markets where, you know what, the people don't really have email addresses, and they're not going to yeah, download every, it. Everybody has an email address. Everybody in this country has an email address. Now, Small towns have email, but they just they barely have a website, probably, so they're correct. just not equipped to have somebody come in and whip up a marketing campaign when you're reaching a couple hundred people. Th- yeah, let's put it hard. this way. Before the pandemic, 20% of sales were done online. 20%. Okay, so like online or web ticketing or, you know, mobile ticketing. Well, now, and during the pandemic, no sales were done online because nobody was going to the movies. No, so don't tell me it's all no, been done. Post-pandemic, post-pandemic, 64%. In the U.S., in, in China, it was always 80%. So 80% mobile. Hmm. Why would it change so dramatically? Uh, well, because people want to do touchless. They don't want to actually talk to people. Not in Alabama. People aren't wearing masks. They don't care anymore. The pandemic's over as far as they're <laughs> concerned. I don't, see, I, everybody, I don't think everybody in the theater is scared to take a movie ticket. I would be I, interested to know. I don't think that know. explains it. Yeah. I would be interested to know because that was, uh, those were April figures. I'd be yeah, interested to know uh, if, yeah, that, yeah, if that. Yeah, I bet that drops steadily back. Yeah, I do wonder. Uh, well, but we'll that see. said, you know, prior to the pandemic, there were exhibitors out there when I was talking to them about mobile apps. They point blank said, I don't need a mobile app. My customers are all in their 60s in a small town in Kansas. You know what? They're not, they are not going to do anything on a mobile app. So right. I'd be interested to go back to them and say, well, what about now? Yeah, I bet they're still right. Uh, but, you know, as far as Tom Bernard and, uh, and uh, uh, Michael Barker, I think, well, yeah, uh, you're right, but it ain't easy. <laughs> you Correct. need money to do it. Um, they also said one other big thing. Uh, they're confident in box office. They believe in theatrical. They say, all right, maybe it won't be quite as big as it was. It's still hugely important. We would strongly agree with that. And they take the bigger picture. They say, look. Decades ago, theatrical was like 80% of all the revenue a movie made. Then it was 50%, you know, dropped and dropped and dropped. Now it's probably less than 50%. It just gets smaller and smaller, but it's still a big driver of a film's visibility and importance and adding value to that movie. And I think we would agree with that 100%. Oh, and breaking news, according to Deadline, film production in Tampa, Florida is stopping. Well, I should hope so. There was a bloody hurricane coming. So yes, they should stop. Let's get that next scene in. No, no, it's time to go, boss. Yeah, I don't like, how is that breaking news? Yeah, it could have been breaking news two days ago, I think. If they hadn't called it, uh, if they had production starting on Monday, shame on them. Uh, but it didn't, you know, these things can veer off, uh, but they also get f- big really really quick so you just don't want to take any chances sorry but google's taking a chance they have launched project caviar this is another area of sperling's expertise they are developing an open source royalty free alternative to dolby vision and dolby atmos those are the video and audio standards that dolby uses they dominate in the consumer market uh google has done a lot in open source video codex is that how you say that codex yes Yes, and they've been doing that for the past decade. Now they have a 3D audio and HDR video for manufacturers, and they're trying to create a consumer-recognizable brand that can compete with Dolby and make people say, yes, I want that TV, I want that stereo. With Instead of Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos, they're going to look for, say, uh, caviar, whatever the hell they're going to call it. 
This has been tried before. Samsung tried to make their alternative HDR10 Plus a household name, hoping everybody else would join in as a not have to pay royalties to Dolby, but that didn't work. But the Alliance for Open Media includes Amazon, Google, Meta, Netflix, Samsung, and others. I guess in this particular fight, they're the underdogs? So yes. uh, do they have any, do they have a chance? Is there anything new about this attempt that makes you think, oh, gee, they're really, they've got their ducks lined up in a row? I couldn't tell you whether they have their ducks lined up in a row, but essentially Dolby Vision is all about the images and uh, giving you more color, more black, deeper blacks, whiter whites, grayer grays. So you get, you know, more colors in included. So if there's 2000 colors on 2K, 4K today, it'll be 10,000 colors. The contrast ratio of, you know, a million to one. And I'm just making that number up, but you know, it'll be some right. ridiculous number to, to one. Uh, the, and Atmos is instead of 5.1 surround sound, where you have left, center, and right behind the screen, and then you have your surrounds uh, around you and behind you, uh, it's all object-based. So rather than channel-based, say, okay, send this sound to the left speaker behind the screen, or send this to mm -hmm. the rear back. Yeah, it's all object-based. So make it sound as if it's three feet from the screen and, and about uh, 10 feet in the air. And that's what Atmos is. There's already an open source codec for that. It's called Immersive Audio Bitstream. Atmos or Dolby actually went to Simpty and said, hey, we will give you the Atmos Bitstream to use for this open source project. So then anybody can use it and, and you can go out there and- We and don't want a competitor. Right. We don't want a competitor because what they knew is it would take 10 years to actually create. It did. And- they had a 10-year head start, they do, and that at that point, they would have filmmakers on board, all the creatives are on board, all of the, the um, manufacturers, so, so Samsung, Apple, etc., they're all on board. And more to the point, all of the mastering houses, when they ma get mastered, all this content gets mastered, it gets mastered using Dolby Atmos mastering tools. The same they thing all, they all use it for free because Dolby wants the marketing so that consumers will buy their product and they will get a royalty. Correct, because every TV that has Dolby Vision, whether you use it or not, you know, you, somebody pays Dolby $5 for that. Usually it's a Samsung or a Toshiba or Sony goes and pays Dolby for the right to use that. Well, multiply that times you know, 5 million TVs being made every, every week. And that's a lot of money. Yep. Well, so, you know, it's going to be a tough battle. They've got it some will. big names there. They need more manufacturers or more people willing to break with Dolby and we're, and hope that consumers don't say, well, gee, why doesn't it say Dolby on it? Well, and, and how, it, it could be well, both. You could have both. I mean, mm -hmm. like DTS and Dolby for years were, you know, it was DTS ready and Dolby ready. Uh, and that was for sound. It, you could have both Dolby Vision and I don't know why And then you eventually seg well, because then you could segue away from Dolby and not pay a royalty once Correct. the name was established enough. Okay, well, we'll see what happens there. Uh, it's hard to root for the underdog when the underdog includes those companies, but uh, it's an interesting, you don't like to see any one company dominate too much. It's just not healthy. Well, uh, but you, you also don't like to see uh, uh, hypocrites. I hate hypocrites, don't you? Well, people last week reached out to me and said, hypocrite, 
talking about Woody Allen last week, and we talked about how his movies have actually done over the last 20 years compared to historically, since he's been around since the late 60s, early 70s. And let me clarify, I was not trying to exonerate or dismiss the claims against Woody Allen. I was trying to present his point of view about the commercial and critical success of his movie. Uh, The fact is he's having more hits in the 2010s and he did in decades. Yeah, you were basically going on math. You were looking at the math. When I was looking about what Woody attitude would be he's like oh okay i'm still getting oscars i'm having more hits than i've had since the 70s so you know i'm doing great because <laughs> in our mind it's like he's making one bad movie after another they're barely hits they weren't as successful as i thought they were uh but they are actually more commercial i mean four hits in the 2010s that's hard to argue with in terms of thinking good about yours you know he had one no hits in the 90s he had one hit in the 80s. So, you know, he had three hits in the 2000s and four in the 2010s. He's on top of the world as far as he's concerned. So that would explain why he's like, why would I retire? You know, we're like, oh, please, you should have retired years ago. But that was his attitude and his point of view. I certainly didn't mean to dismiss the complicated issues surrounding him and his movies and how you feel about them. And whatever you feel is just fine, just like it is about anyone. I still listen to Michael Jackson. I didn't for a while, but I do now. So I'm certainly not going to throw stones. But I didn't want to imply, I didn't think it was anything worth worrying about. Like, oh, who cares? You know, that's all over with. Far from it. But I do know one thing matters in America more than Woody Allen, more than movies. That's football. Okay, is that true? And you're talking about the one that you play with your feet, right? I'm talking about American football, gridiron, tough, oh. rough. The football I can't watch anymore because it's so violent. Anyway, it really is violent now. Oh, well, it's always been violent, and people pay a heavy, heavy. Well, actually, is more violent because of the, you know, the metal, the, the 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 solid helmets rather than the leather helmets. The 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 way the game is played now, it's much more violent. It's there's no healthy way to play football. That's the sad truth. But people still love it. Thursday night football premiered on Amazon. It took a week. For them to release the numbers. And Thursday Night Football on Amazon, the numbers were good. It reached 13 million people officially, according to Nielsen. And Amazon must have said, whew, because they guaranteed 12.5 million. And guess what? The average last season for Thursday Night Football was 12.84. So they were right there saying, we're going to be able to deliver the same audience that you got last season, even though it's now on Amazon Prime. Well, they did it. Now, 1.1 million of that total came from the home markets of the two teams. So from streaming alone over Amazon Prime, you had 11.87 million viewers. Uh, Amazon added up about 15 million viewers in all because they included people watching on Twitch and all the other devices that can track like your phone and other stuff that isn't captured by Nielsen. So all in all, that's how I watch stuff is on my laptop. They say 15 million people tuned into Thursday Night Football. Do you think they really delayed it to get better news right before the next week? I don't think so. I'm trying to figure out why it took them a week. I think it was new. You know, they haven't ever reported streaming overnights before. And I think just trying to figure it all out, Nielsen says, we just wanted to get it right. I'm willing to believe that and accept that. I don't see any technological reason why it should maintain and take a week compared to uh, what they had, the system they had before, but you know, if it is, they should explain. Call us, let us know, tell us what's going on, Nielsen. We'd love to have you on the show. Yeah, you know, you can call us eight 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 five six seven send. That's eight 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 five six seven seven two six three. I went through our messages this week, in fact, uh, and you know what? 
if you know if you leave us a good message, we will definitely play it uh, during one of our future episodes. You can no also, marriage proposals again. Oh well. Yes, please. God, enough already, people. Okay, or you can email us dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D I R T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can, you know, follow us on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. Or you can like us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page now. This week, they've already kind of released how many, uh, I guess it's on Monday, they released how many people watched uh, the Thursday night game. So it did get faster. And what did they report? Something like 11 million people. So it dropped by about a million. Uh, I didn't see that. And uh, that's bad because that would be lower than what they had probably guaranteed. Maybe I, I doubt their guarantee changes week to week. Maybe it does based on the lineup. Well, based on who's playing. So the smaller market teams, they, right. you know, they'll, but uh, you know, here's the thing. This is really what this portends. The question has always been, will audiences, will fans follow the, the broadcasts, if you will, from cable and broadcast television networks? Well, they went streaming. from broadcast to cable. They will go from cable to streaming, and they'll be angry every step of the way. People right. don't like it when they wanted to watch the Yankee game, and it was on Apple only. That's right. They wanted to watch Aaron Judge try to hit his 61st or his 60th home run. I forget what it was at the time. 60th. But they were, they were pissed. They were yeah. annoyed, like, why? It's like, well, guess what? It was on ESPN exclusive a week ago. Unless you subscribe to ESPN, you weren't going to be able to watch it there. Over the air is a you know, distant past. So that's just the world we live in. Speaking of football, back to football from baseball, the Super Bowl halftime show will be brought to you by Apple, not Pepsi. And this year's star is Rihanna. Rihanna is going to be hosting that and performing on the halftime show. There goes our big theory that football would have trouble for years trying to find people willing to appear on it with their complicated racist you know, owners and, and treatment of players and what was going on in football. Well, that didn't last long. You know why? They reached more than 100 million people. And some people said, I'm willing to perform at that. And the nice thing about Rihanna is she'll be fine even if it rains. Yeah, I was going to say, if it rains, she'll have her umbrella, Ella, Ella, Ella. That's right. And speaking of streaming, and yeah, I really am cynical about the stars who appear on the Super Bowl halftime show. Nothing has demonstrably changed in football. You know, the owner, you look at the owners of basketball, the owners of football, it's a mess. It's a disaster. And so you're, you're giving them cover. You're, you're letting them have an easy one. But she's not the only one. There are many, many others like, uh, you know, Eminem and Dr. Dre last year. So, oh, well. Well, he didn't but, want to throw away his shot. Oh, Lordy. Um, so we're on to streaming very quickly. We're still looking. Oh, I forgot to see if the Tuesday numbers were out. We're recording on a Tuesday as opposed to a Monday. So sometimes uh, the, the, the new numbers come out uh, on a Tuesday. So we could see whether the new numbers for Nielsen are out. And the answer is for the week of August 22nd to the 28th. Is that the week we're on? It is indeed the week we're on. So we don't have the new numbers yet. The Sandman is still in the top 10. House of Dragons. We're getting little tidbits of information. They are, according to Variety, based on Nielsen, the show is averaging 29 million viewers a week, an episode, I should say. Uh, why they kept that secret for five episodes, I don't know. If episode two and three were reaching 29 million people, you think they'd be yelling it from the rooftops. So it took us weeks of a blackout. 
Maybe this is all just, it's a whole new thing to measure streaming and they're just trying to figure it all out, make sure they get it right. I don't know, but that's certainly good news for HBO Max if they are averaging 29 to 30 million viewers for a relaunch of a show and there's overnight metrics based on people watching it, you know, terrestrially and those numbers are up 3%, up 4%, up 2% and there was just a big creative change uh, the, the episode that just aired this week and apparently audiences still stayed with it and kept following it. So, you know, the problem here is that we're having to depend on them to tell us what's going on. Nielsen is starting to be involved. And so that's why we trust the Nielsen numbers on Thursday Night Football. That's why we're trusting Nielsen on House of Dragons and what's going on. Lord of the Rings, we don't know anything, except we do know that the new head of Italy, who's a fascist, I don't care how she gussies it up. She's been a fascist her whole life. Uh, the new leader of Italy is from a far-right group, sprung up from a group of uh, supporters of Benito Mussolini, and she loves the Lord of the Rings. She used to dress up as a hobbit. In Italy, the far-right embraced hobbit for the last 50 years. They would have hobbit camps. They have far-right groups singing ugly propaganda called the Fellowship of the Ring. The New York Times has this crazy story on them. I think if the Tolkien estate knew, surely they would have tried to stop it. But the new leader of Italy has dressed up as a hobbit. I find that hard to believe. And it's a depressing story because there are some ugly parts of the Lord of the Rings. You know, all the good people are white, all the bad people are dark. You know, which is, I think, one reason she's not going to like the new series, The Rings of Power, when she watches it, because that show is very diverse. And so she's going to, this isn't my Lord of the Rings. She's going to be just as furious as all the trolls online. But I did mention Star Wars and Andor. That show just dropped its first three episodes. It'll take about a month before we get the viewing numbers for that. I have to say, it was created by Tony Gilroy, who wrote Rogue One, the best Star Wars movie since the original three. Low bar. Nonetheless, it was a solid movie. And I'm kind of pleasantly shocked about how much I'm enjoying the show. It's leagues better than The Mandalorian, or I haven't watched Obi-Wan, or most of the Marvel. I mean, it's an actual good show. It's I don't want to hype it up too much, but it is Star Wars for adults. It feels like a show that's lived in and real and gritty. Turns out the production designers from Chernobyl, that terrific miniseries, worked on the look of this show. And I'm, I'm quite enjoying it. I'm looking forward to it. I haven't watched any of these series. I have to start. I have to catch up on all of them well you know you you decide which ones you like i'm glad the rings of power isn't embarrassing and i'm pleasantly surprised about andor with diego luna it was a solid show um you know they what makes me really feel good about the show is they have a roadmap just two seasons 24 episodes and that will tell the story they want to tell leading up to star wars rogue one so they're not going to try to stretch it out. They know what they're doing. They have a plan. So I, I trust them. People describe their first three episodes as a slow burn. I didn't think so. I was kind of into it right away. I was very absorbed in it. But it's certainly amped up by the end of the third episode. And I just feel like they know where they're going. And that makes me feel very comfortable. Well, you know what? If that makes you feel comfortable, then I'd like to, like to hear what you think about some of our Big deal or big whoop stories this week? Well, give us, give me your opinion on that. I will. Good segue. Yeah, this is actually. It's all right. You don't need yeah, to segue. Yeah. It's all right. It's all right. It's all well, right. it is time for big deal or big whoop. Our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Now, this is a big deal in my opinion here in the U.S. The evening newscasts on the major networks still draw eyeballs. I had no mm -hmm. idea. For the sixth season in a row, ABC's World News Tonight with David Muir is tops in total viewers. The 25 to 54 demo and Michael's mom. 
Okay, she really likes David Muir. Anyway, the ratings are down from last season, which enjoyed an election year boost, of course. In any case, ABC's Muir reached, get this, an average of 8.1 million viewers for that half hour nightly newscast, you know, right before prime time. NBC's Lester Holt reaches 6.8 million and CBS's Nora O'Donnell reaches 4.94 million viewers. You put that all together. I had no idea that many people were still watching network news. That's like 19 million people. Yeah, that's a that's a lot. Yeah, well, is it a big deal or a big whoop? I say it is a big deal because those are big numbers. If World News Tonight was a primetime show, it would have ranked at number 17 last season, ahead of This Is Us, which would bump down to number 18 in all of primetime. Lester Holtz on NBC would rank number 30, bumping down, being ahead of CSI Las Vegas, and CBS's Laura, uh, Nora O'Donnell would rank number 49, bumping down The Resident on Fox. I've never heard of The Resident, have you? Yes. Oh, you have? Okay, why? Oh, it's a medical show. It's a medical show. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, and it also would be behind. Ranking at number 48 would be America's Funniest Home Videos, which sadly is still on the air. Anyway, The Resident stars Matt Zucri of Gilmore Girls, and he was also on The Good Wife. I like that actor a lot, so I'm kind of intrigued by it. I don't think the show can be that good because nobody talks about it. But I'm kind of, I don't know. It's been on the air since 2018. It's a Grey's Anatomy type medical drama. Matt, by the way, as I looked it up, he's of Ukrainian descent, which is certainly timely and interesting. He was a top tennis player in college. I'm a big tennis fan. My mom was a tennis umpire. And there's not a hint of personal info about his private life. No girlfriend, no wife. So that makes me very encouraged. Hey, your mother was a tennis uh, umpire. Do people run up to her and go, you can't be serious? She was on the court, on the line. He was not talking to her, but she was literally, I have the photo. She was on the court, on the line for that match. I suppose every umpire claims that, but mom really was on the court during that famous meltdown. It was not about her call, thank goodness. I've certainly seen him yell at her at other times, but uh, she was a tennis umpire, especially in the 70s and 80s. So the heyday of John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova and all that. So yeah, she's been there. Uh, Well, it's a heyday for Hannah Gadsby. The talented stand-up artist Hannah Gadsby is making headlines once again. After mocking Netflix and its support of Dave Chappelle in the most scathing terms, Gadsby, who's a stand-up comedian, she just signed a new multi-project deal with... Wait, uh, this must be wrong. It's it's Netflix. She signed a deal... Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Yeah, wait, wait. As part of her deal, though, Gadsby will do a new special featuring a raft of up-and-coming talent of diverse gender. That's good. Sexuality and race, also good. All coming from around the world. I guess that's also good. So is this a Band-Aid or a positive step forward? Big deal or big whoop? I would say it's uh, probably a big whoop. I don't think she was you know, just trying to create attention and excitement. I think what she said was sincere when she was very angry about Netflix using her special as a way to excuse their support for Dave Chappelle. I don't think this was a plot just to show her bona fides and then sign a big fat new deal. So I take her at her word that she meant what she said then. It was pretty scathing, pretty direct. And I think she said, well, this is something good I can make out of this. I can give a platform to other people on Netflix. So you know, uh, I think it's a reasonable choice. Hopefully the specials will be really good and do really well. Uh, this is something we, this next story is something we wrote about on Celluloid Junkie this week. Today Ticks is a digital ticket seller that's a big player in theater like Broadway and cultural events. 
it just purchased the UK-based immersive experience company known as Secret Cinema. The latter company is known for creating successful fan-friendly events built around known properties. Here in Los Angeles, the, they did the TV show Stranger Things and sold 300,000 tickets. Did you go? I did not. I did okay. not. Uh, and I'm glad my, my kids didn't know about it because they would have forced me to buy them very expensive <laughs> tickets. Uh, they also do, you know, they, they did the movie franchise James Bond. Uh, top studios, they trust Secret Cinema, whose most recent success was for Disney, which it was an immersive experience built around the Guardians of the Galaxy. It was held in Wembley Park in London. The company has mostly done events in the UK. Indeed, it sold more than 1 million tickets to more than 50 events, and they've, they've covered movies like Blade Runner and Star Wars and Alien and Bridgerton and Dirty Dancing and Back to the Future and video games and more. The purchase means it will expand the US, to the U.S. in a big way and have a permanent base here in Los Angeles. Big deal or big whoop? Well, I'm, it was a big whoop to me. I didn't know anything about this, um, but I guess it's a big deal. They're going to have a permanent base both in London, which they've never had, and L.A. They've grown from having sort of a secret event. You just show up and you find out, oh, I'm being immersed in, you know, Alien. You didn't know in advance what was going to happen or what you were stepping into. Now, of course, they're like, woo, that's the big draw. And uh, they're doing a good job. And they're pivoting from limited events, you know, for like a week or two weeks or something, to open-ended theatrical runs a la Punch Drunk, the great immersive theater company. And, of course actual theatrical shows that you'll find on Broadway in the West End with prices to match, however. It's quite a pricey thing. I guess when all is said and done, you get immersed in a world and then they show you two episodes of Stranger Things or they show you The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> so I'm like, really? $75 or $100 to do that? I don't know. But they've been working. And I have to say what impresses me the most is that Disney signed off on them and allowed them to do Guardians of the Galaxy. Disney typically will not let anyone else get anywhere near their stuff. They know better than anyone what they want to do. They know the quality they want. And for them to sign off on a third-party company to do Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, I found that pretty impressive, I have to say. And uh, it's not just Disney. Because when it comes to something like that, it's Marvel. Marvel will be, Disney could say, yeah, yeah, we love this. This is a great idea. And then all of a sudden, Marvel could come along and go, uh, no. And that's it. Disney will go, oh, you heard Marvel. We can't do it. I think Disney is the bigger boss there. But yes, I'm sure Marvel is very, you know, they're all, you know, James Bond, you know, Star Wars. These are all, you know, well, that's Disney too. Bridgerton. This is all big stuff that people have a lot of stuff invested in and they don't hand it over lightly. But I had to say Disney especially made me uh, open my eyes and go, wow, okay, that's pretty impressive. You figure yeah, Disney would just want to do it themselves. And I don't know if uh, you, you should definitely take a look at uh, search for Secret Cinema on Celluloid Junkie. We've we've got some amazing photos of some of the work they've done. You cool. go into these things. It used to be you don't tell anybody. You don't tell anybody. Don't tell people where it is. Right. Don't tell people what the movie is. People will buy tickets and they'll come. And they'll figure it out. But then they said no. Actually, telling people what movie it is, they come dressed up, dirty dancing. They all came like it was a uh, you know like it was the nineteen eighties or you know nineteen fifties I think uh, and. Back to the Future, they definitely came like it was the 1950s. So it was really, it, these sets are amazing. During the Blade Runner uh, event, it was raining on people, so they all had umbrellas. It was just, it, it's amazing to see. They, great photos. You're not allowed to, to bring your camera in for copyright reasons. Uh, it's just amazing. Cool. We will link to the CJ story in our show notes. And by the way, uh, you know, uh, right now, there are a number of film festivals that are trying to program their, their festivals still. And 
uh, several Disney has said yes to uh, Wakanda Forever. You know, Black Panther. Yeah, you could you could show that. You could premiere it here in North America. And uh, Marvel's come along and said, yeah, no, no, they're not. And yeah. so Disney has said, okay, I guess you're not. I guess you're not. Speaking of uh, things that uh, are not going to happen, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. <gasps> no, no, no. I'm just looking no, around. No, nothing. Keep going. No, nothing Keep bad going. happened. Oh, wait. Actually, it did. Actually, now that I'm looking here, I, the headline, the Broadway musical named Beetlejuice is closing in January of 2023. It happened pre-COVID. And it, it had opened to, pre-COVID. It yeah, opened. sorry. It opened pre-COVID. Thank you. Uh, and had to close to make way for the music man. Remember that? I had tickets to see Beetlejuice and then, you know, it had to close. Uh, now, that was a shame because it was really turning into a significant word of mouth hit thanks to an audience pleasing performance on the Tony Awards. Then Broadway shut down entirely. There was a little pandemic. Uh, two years later, they tried again to pretty good success, but audiences just aren't coming back fast enough. You know, my good friend, The Phantom. Uh, told me that as well. <laughs> uh, he works over at the opera. Uh, in, in all, in all, the show will have run about 20 months on Broadway. But don't be scared. It's going to launch a tour in December, and I'm sure it'll be a successful tour. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop. show closes on Broadway after a pretty good run, facing a lot of obstacles and hurdles. And hey, they get the last laugh because the music man is closing too. And of course, Dear Evan Hansen just closed and so on. That's tied for the 47th longest running show in history alongside The Wiz. That's how hard it is to have a long running show. 20 months is a darn good run. You know, that's that's not, you know world beating but it's you know that's a very good solid run and they really imprinted themselves and made um you know a name for themselves and they will perhaps be able to tour successfully the question is though was scott rudin right because he said look i don't we're not bringing back uh you know to kill a mockingbird this is not the environment to do it it didn't work for beetlejuice Maybe he was right, commercially at least. I don't think, even though this show is closing, that hurts it. It certainly loses them some money because they just reopened it up. But To Kill a Mockingbird was an even more established hit than Beetlejuice. That was growing into a hit, whereas To Kill a Mockingbird was an absolute blockbuster. But it is a very tough time on Broadway. Uh, the big winner from this year's performance on the Tonys was MJ the Musical, and that one is doing well. But you know, when you look at uh, what's going on on Broadway, there are just four plays on Broadway right now. There's Harry Potter, about to close The Kite Runner, and then four shows right towards the bottom. Cost of Living, Death of a Salesman, uh, Leopoldstadt, and something else. I mean, it's not an easy time for plays, so maybe Scott Rudin has a point. Scott Rudin, the producer. That's right. Yeah. Now, speaking of theater, we know Beetlejuice won't be on Broadway after January. We just talked about it. But what will be playing in commercial theaters and nonprofits all over the country? I guess American Theater just produced its first list since COVID, okay, de detailing the play. They do this like every year, it seems like. And they detail the plays and playwrights getting the most productions this season. Lynn Nottage is on top of the world. Her 2021 play, Clyde's, it's going to enjoy 11 productions around the country, and she'll have 24 shows playing around the country, including, well, with Clyde's with 11, Sweat with 7, and other works like Intimate Apparel, also getting some love. Tied for the most produced playwright is Lauren Gunderson, also with 24 individual productions around the country. Gunderson's plays shine a spotlight on women in history, science, and literature, and are very popular both commercially and in high schools and in community theater productions. So that's what these are tracking here. Well, this no, the, the, no, these are 
commercial. These are commercial runs, not high school and community theater productions. Those oh, okay. are much different. I mean, there's a different list for the most produced plays and musicals in high schools. Nobody really, I think, tracks community theater. Oh, wow. They should. Now, the second most produced play is, get this, Clue, based Ooh. on the film comedy, which is based on the board game. And that was adapted by Sandy Rustin, who is also a woman. Indeed, around half of the most produced playwrights are women, and about half of each list are people of color. So is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, and those would be people or shows of color. Um, it's, a big, it's a big deal, uh, not for the good news, but the bad news that is embedded in here. The good news is that, yes, theaters are back up, they're running. However, they, they pull about 550 members of the theater communications group all over the country, and when you look at the numbers for the two seasons pre-COVID, there were about 2,200 productions. This upcoming season, and they're now including, unlike before, streaming-only productions and audio-only productions. So if you do a, an original podcast of a, a play, uh, that counts as a new production. When you add it all up, they're only doing about 1,300 shows. So it's not a 50% drop, but it's darn close to it. So there's a long way to grow to get back to where they were before. So about 900 productions short of where they were in, you know, 2019, 2019 and so on. So uh, it's good. They're coming back, but there's a lot of room to get back to where they were. Just like, you know, the movie box office. Now, you know, audio only productions like radio dramas, right? Mm -hmm. So my daughter, my little daughter is taking a film appreciation class. First cool. movie they watched, Citizen Kane. Cool. So I asked her, I said, oh, did, did you know, the teacher tell you about uh, Orson Welles and War of the Worlds? Uh, no, no. I said, <laughs> well, do you know who William Randolph Hearst is and how the film really? Who's that? I was like, yeah. Uh, can I have your teacher's email, please? <laughs> ouch, ouch. All right. Well, come on. How could you like, no, here's I Citizen agree, Kane. I agree. I mean, it's no, no reference. Is it what? possible they, the teacher mentioned it and your daughter just doesn't remember? It very or well she might. didn't read the readout that they handed her? Just saying. Both things. <laughs> both of these things. There is, a, there is a, a, a negative zero chance that that actually could have <laughs> There's a not zero <laughs> chance that that actually happened. Yes. Fair enough. <laughs> oh, Spotify. Okay. Speaking of uh, audio dramas, the world-beating music streaming service, you know, Spotify. They would like you to do pretty much anything, actually. But one thing, they don't want you listening to music. You know, first it launched podcasts because the more you listen to podcasts, the less you listen to music and the less royalty Spotify has to pay back to the music industry. And since you're listening to our podcast and perhaps found it on Spotify, who are we to complain, really? I mean, thank you. Uh, yes. But, you know, you better it's, look, better us than Joe Rogan, okay? Give us some love. Now, Spotify would like to recommend some audiobooks. It's launched an audiobook library with more than 300,000 titles for you to choose from. They will not let me forget it every time I open Spotify up. They remind me. Uh, you don't get a discount, by the way, on any of these audiobooks if you're a subscriber. At least not yet. You also don't get any Spotify exclusives yet. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, I think at the moment it's a it's a big deal because it's a big move into a new market. I think they did have some exclusives. I'm not sure if they're involved in this yet, but they did create some audio original stuff, so maybe that is included in there. Uh, but they haven't, I don't think, done any new recordings of an audio book that they're saying, here's a brand new one that's only available on Spotify, but that will come. The problem here is that they don't want to give Apple a cut of their business. And to do that, 
When you're in your app, you have to leave the app and click on a link that takes you to a new website so you can buy the book and then get it back, go to Spotify so you can listen to it. So that's so they don't have to give Apple the 30%. It makes it very cumbersome, very, you know, a big barrier for you to use it. You can't just click on the book and download it and start to listen. So that doesn't help, but they're in there for the long haul. We'll see how, to, how they do. Roseanne Barr, big deal. Or big, no, I'm kidding. Roseanne Barr is returning to stand up for the first time in 16 years. That's the joke right there. Uh, the comedian, 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 comedian. No, well, they don't need to be gender specific. She's a comedian, just like there are pilots and cooks all and right, engineers. Well, she, she's a comedian. All right. She made her bones in stand up as a self-proclaimed domestic goddess who went on to star in one of the biggest and most influential sitcoms of all time, dubbed Roseanne. She was famously booted off the reboot and her character killed off when Barr couldn't stop making hateful and racist comments online. Remember when we talked about that right here? I on do. Oh my goodness. Her last special aired on HBO in 2006. So you can imagine Roseanne already has some punchlines ready to go. Here's the first one. Her new special airs on Fox Nation. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop. You know, talented per, per comic gets new stand-up special. Uh, there you go. Roseanne Barr was uh, a major, major talent. The Roseanne was a fairly groundbreaking show, building on shows before, like The Honeymooners. But, you know, working class people, uh, it was some very funny stuff on that show. A great attitude towards parents and kids that was sort of very realistic and nice to see. Building on stuff done before, like on Leave it to Beaver. Uh, it's, you know, it's a shame what happened. It's a shame that her ugly side came out and it poisoned the well. But, oh my gosh, from HBO to Fox Nation, that is a, that is a sad step down. But... Either they were the only ones who wanted her, or she's like, that's my new audience, and that's where I'm going. So I don't wish her ill, but I hope that she has turned over a new leaf and can make fun of herself rather than other people. I love her new curse word. Ah, nuts. Because <laughs> okay. okay. she's a macadamia nut farmer. Oh, ah, okay. Yeah. Oh, all right. There you go. I forgot about that. And I interviewed her, and I, so I should have known that. The Force is strong with James Earl Jones. Hey, hey, uh, no, no sleep apnea here, okay? Uh, here's the thing. The 91-year actor is pretty much, he's all but retired. His voice, however, is going to live on. Lucasfilm used a combination of AI and old recordings to create the performance of Darth Vader in the new series, Obi-Wan Kenobi. They described Jones as a benevolent presence overseeing the work. Though it seems to have amounted mostly to Jones signing off on what was done. Hey, he's 91, okay? Everyone was happy with the results, so now Jones and his family are giving the green light to keep using AI to keep the voice of Darth Vader alive in projects for generations to come. Is this a big deal or big whoop? What do you think? I think it's a big deal. And here's why. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, if Here's the thing. He's 91 now. So doing the voice now, he's not going to sound the same as he did in 1977. However, there is technology now that will allow you to type out what you want someone like James Earl Jones to say in that voice. And if he were to read 40 minutes worth of material, they could type out anything and it would make it. It's not wholly available yet. It is. Well, they no use they use similar tech to create the voice of a young Luke Skywalker for the book of Boba Fett. So they're already using it now in their product. It will only get better. Uh, not only is it important now for James Earl Jones and Darth Vader, but it's really important for the future. 
ABBA. I can't imagine any musical lack not saying, you know what? I'm Taylor Swift. I'm going to spend three months digitally recording myself as much as I can performing all my songs so I have that to use in the future. It's hard to future-proof it and make sure what you do is available, but you do the best job you can and you want to capture that now. Harry Styles, he's an actor and a musician. You know what? You sit down and you read, you know, probably like half an hour of text or an hour of text, and that gives you all the words you need for like 90% of all dialogue, and they can patch together other words that maybe you haven't said to, from, those, from that text. You do that for the voice now. You do that for the James Earl Joneses of the future. Then you record them in middle age and old age, and that just opens up so many possibilities of what can be done in terms of entertainment down the road, like at the Abbas show, that uh, the mind blows. But yeah, if James Earl Jones were coming up today, that's exactly what they do. Whoever's doing voice voiceover work samuel l jackson i'd record his voice right now he's not getting any younger you know it's just a, a huge new opportunity for the estates and it's a, just a creative opportunity for everybody at a young age a middle age and an older age to capture something now store it and then maybe find out what you can do with it in the future so i think everyone's gonna just say you know what that's worth spending a million dollars on when you're a big superstar so you have that and can you know hopefully draw upon it in the future you know, so here's how this works. They take the four, it's usually around 40 minutes. And I saw a, a demonstration of this at Adobe Max. They took uh, Jordan, it's Jordan Peele and uh, uh, Ke uh, Michael Keegan, Michael Key. Keegan Peele, Keegan Peele. Yeah. And they took, uh, I guess, uh, Ke Keegan Michael, I can't, what's his name? Key and Peele. So the key guy. <laughs> I just know him as, hey, it's Key. You know, I don't know the full name. Yeah, you actually don't know him. I don't know him, know him. But here's the thing. They took, uh, he was having a conversation with Jordan Peele about when he was nominated for an Emmy and he woke up and he said, I woke up and I, you know, immediately I, I, I kissed my, my dog. I kissed my wife in that order. And they took that recording and they changed it so that his wife would go first. I kissed my wife, I kissed my dog in that order. And then, and it sounded flawless. Mm -hmm. You did not know they made any cuts and they did it just by typing text. Then they said, you know what? They had Jordan Peele there on the stage. They said, Jordan, let's take this and we will actually insert you into it. And so there was Key saying, I woke up and I kissed Jordan. He never said the word Jordan. But right. the way they do it is they take each word and they break it down into syllables. The, like well, this, this is why we're worried about deep fakes, of course, as well. And that's that, a different issue. That's, that is the big problem. Is that Well, that's, that's a separate problem. But in terms of the creative potential, I think every notable actor and musical talent that can afford to would want to do something. 100%. Capture Springsteen at, in his you know, 1970s and then the 1990s and the 2010s because it just gives you so many uh, opportunities uh, for, for creative projects down the road. But yeah, deep fakes are a big problem. And his name is Keegan-Michael Key. Oh, okay. That's it. Well, you know, Springsteen would say like, all you need is for me to count to four. No other numbers needed. <laughs> Listen to except, for 57, except for 57 channels and nothing's on that's true actually uh parade magazine michael your stomping grounds actually right one of them one of them yeah. yeah they are the venerable insert that's appeared in sunday newspapers across america including the los angeles times which i get on sunday in fact it's the most widely read magazine in the country thanks to a 32 million circulation that's their count 32 million and, let, and let's be honest the draw of my name. 
Yes. And by the way, 54 million in readership. Now you might wonder like, well, how does that work? Well, it comes here. I read it. My kids read it. That's three people. Right. So here's the thing. As of November, its print edition will end after 81 years. Parade launched on May 31st, 1941, but its new owners see more value in pumping up its online presence, Parade.com. Now, Parade.com enjoys more than 22 million unique visitors a month, and it's growing thanks to quote-unquote verticals devoted to stuff like Parade Pets, newsletters filling readers in on all things royal, and some very good lists like the best thrillers of all time, written by Michael, and best mysteries of all time, I think also written by Michael, and so on. Uh, It's the end of an era, but is it a big deal or a big whoop? I guess, sadly, it's a big whoop. You see more and more in magazines and newspapers just disappearing completely. But it's very depressing, I have to say. I haven't thought about Parade Magazine in years. I read it as a kid. I mean, read it. You glance through it very quickly. But there, you know, I sort of flipped through it as a kid. I got the chance to write for them, which was very nice. Did some stuff online. Did a cover story for them on Paul Newman two, a week ago, two weeks ago. And I people came out of the woodwork. You know, mostly older people, of course, their, their audience is older, but people who I hadn't heard from in years, friends of my mom, like, is that your son? Does he, you know, does he write? Is this him? You know, it's like, it really has a big draw. And I don't think parade.com has the same draw. There's, there's a power in print, but when you look at the expense, they look at the cold, hard numbers and say, not worth it, I guess. Yeah. Because they pay to print it and then of course. they probably pay the newspapers to deliver it inside their, and I would say that. I guess the advertising isn't paying for it anymore. That said, um, I do kind of wonder if, you know, the whole thing about parade.com is that it's from a newspaper, you know? So, well, yes, you lose the draw of knowing that the parade name, of course, gets put in front of people's face every week. And uh, that's, that's a loss of marketing for sure. That said, I was walking by a Starbucks and I, I saw these, these two older gentlemen talking and they said, uh, oh, is that the newspaper? God, I haven't seen one of these in ages. I haven't picked up one. And I, and I looked at them yeah. and I was like, what are you talking about? The newspaper, the only reason the newspaper still exists is for people like you. But, you know, but <laughs> and they, then, they, then they beat you up. Uh, pretty much, yeah. I got to tell you, that 70-year-old, he could, he could pack a punch. Uh, now, I do wonder uh, if they read Peanuts when they were younger. Those, uh, because I'm sure know, they did. Yeah, it, because it's not just Parade Magazine people will miss when they open the newspaper. They may also be missing some of their favorite comic strips. The Washington Post ran a feature asking if it's the end of comic strips, and the short answer is yes. Y- yes, it is, actually. <laughs> Across the U.S., newspapers are shutting down or publishing on fewer days, and in every case, the amount of space devoted to comic strips is shrinking or disappearing altogether. I think if they wanted to survive, they should have more comics because it's not easy to get them anywhere else. So I think that's a big mistake, you know? I agree. You want people to buy your Sunday newspaper, fill it with four pages of comics. Oh, well. And, well, by the way, not all those comic strips are available online if the newspaper offers a digital edition. Exactly. Because they're owned by syndicates that say, yeah, no. The story, by the way, was triggered by the announcement of Lee Enterprises. That's an Iowa-based company that owns almost 80 daily newspapers, just like Gannett. It shrank its comic strips from two pages to half a page with the same comic strips offered in every single edition, which is actually quite common, by the way. So No, it's not. It is now more and more, but it hasn't been at all. Well, I've been reading the same comics for years. Uh, You read the same newspaper for years. True. No, I'm saying, but there's like the LA Times carries the same, but if you go to the, you know, 
another newspaper in that syndicate, they have like a local comic strip that they decide they're oh. going to take a chance on. That's how comics get launched historically. A couple newspapers take a chance on a new comic and then it works and it goes to 50 papers and mm. 200. Okay. But when the top people say, no, you have to only carry these five comics, there's no room for new growth and new comic strips to appear. So it's a disaster. Well, so there are fewer strips when, with no editorial independence, even fewer chances for, as you mentioned, Michael, new comic strips to get a foothold in their hometown newspaper and grow from there. In August, News Corp in Australia... They owned uh, roughly 50 newspapers and local weeklies there. They said they were getting rid of comics completely. So no more comic strips in those newspapers. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, here's what happened. I said, oh, I wonder what the holdings of News Corp Australia are. So I went to Wikipedia to look it up. And they've got a bunch of lists of newspapers and weeklies and, you know, local things like a la The Village Voice and The Messenger and this place. and that. So I'm looking at the... the the fifth newspaper that they listed, the fifth publication, ceased appearing in June of 2015. Six newspapers in South Australia, all defunct, some with an online presence, and on and on and on. You look through their holdings, and it's again and again, ceased publication, online only. Ceased, it's like, ugh, it's just the stories of newspapers in general. So the story of Parade Magazine and the comic strips is just a sad part of today, but we're really going to miss that independent media that we've enjoyed for all these years. You know, uh, the LA Times has two pages every day, uh, some great comics. What I would say is uh, comic, the new comic strip creators should uh, actually get into Instagram. And now they're not allowed to do this because, because uh, you know, they're all parts of syndicates and there's copyrights and issues. There like are that. comics. There are comics already doing that. There is, there's a comic you can, uh, a, a daily comic thing you can subscribe to. If you like um, Tom Tomorrow, really good political uh, comic uh, strip, a really good uh, daily comic, a uh, weekly comic strip that's really good. He always sends you say, hey, join this, subscribe to it, support comic artists. And so you can get like a bunch of comics from independent comic artists who have banded together to try and create enough content that people will say, oh, it's worth $5 a week or a month or whatever it may be. So other comics are, of course, on Instagram and Twitter and doing everything they can on Facebook to gain an audience. But having that reach in your home, it's really hard to replace that. And you know what? It's really hard to replace music, apparently, which is our topic this week during Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, you know, how they affect you. Well, here, let me take this away. So we've got a little roundup of stories here. The first one is about recorded music revenue, which is growing. Music revenue grew in the first half of 2022 in North America. That's great news. And what is recorded music revenue? That covers physical and digital sales, streaming, like your subscription to Spotify and mine to Amazon Music and the like. It also includes things like uh, uh, Peloton and the money they pay into music business for the access to the music. That hit $7.7 billion for the first half of 2022. That's up. 9% over 2021. The amazing thing here is that we were still coming down from the pandemic and 
music services and stuff were exploding. There was huge growth in 2020 and 2021 because people were stuck at home and didn't know what to do. The fact that it's still growing, even at a slower rate, is really impressive. And if it had flatlined or even shrunk a little bit, I'd say, relax. We just had massive growth last year and the year before. You can expect this little recovery. But the fact that it's still growing a little bit, that's really good news for the industry. Uh, one area that's a really big spot is vinyl. Vinyl exploded during the pandemic and continues to grow. It grew 15% in the first half of this year compared to last year. It hit over half a billion dollars in revenue, $570 million. But you know what? Sales are only 13% of total revenue. Most of the money, as you would expect, comes from digital subscriptions, streamers like Amazon Music and Spotify via both paid and ad-supported listeners, right? That's where it comes from. That rose 10%. Again, really good news. It includes customized radio like Pandora, YouTube, things like that. In all, there are 90 million subscriptions, paid subscriptions in North America. Sperling, I assume you have a family plan. That counts as one subscription. You have four people on it, but it only counts as one subscription, by the way. Subscriptions contribute about $5 billion, So, you know, that's a lot of revenue. Other sources, YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, and so on. So again, most of the money in music is coming from streaming. Some stuff is coming from physical sales. Half a billion dollars is nothing to sneeze at, uh, but that's, you know, 500 million compared to, you know, 7.2 billion. So clearly that's never going to become the dominant source of revenue ever again. And streaming has still got room to grow. So that's, that's kind of interesting. And uh, while that was happening, we got two other stories. One is about the American Music Fairness Act. Sperling, as you may know, when a song gets played on the radio in North America, whoever wrote the song, whoever owns that publishing rights, gets a little money. Ka-ching! Right. But Frank Sinatra, he doesn't get a penny. So if you wrote my way, you get a, you know, a penny. Frank Sinatra doesn't get anything when that song is played on Actually, the radio. Actually, my way, he does because he uh, owned the record company, Reprise Records. Um, but no, the record company doesn't get any money. Nothing, not a penny. The owner of that actual recording doesn't get a penny. Neither does the artist. Neither do the musicians who play on it. It's only the owners of the publishing and the songwriter who get any money in America. That's the only case in the world. Virtually every other major country, most countries, in fact, music goes to both the person who wrote the song, the people who own the publishing rights, and the artist and the record label. So Springsteen, the songwriter, gets money when you play Born to Run, but Springsteen, the singer, and the E Street Band and Columbia Records, they don't get a penny in North America. Play that same song in England, and everybody gets a piece of, of, of the pie. So that's been this unique situation in America for a long, long time. Streamers don't get that break. They got to pay up to everybody uh, because it was a crazy situation. But the radio has been able to block any way to change that and make the U.S. follow the same way everybody else all over the world does. You play a song by Michael Jackson, the songwriter should get money, so should Michael Jackson's estate. Now that's finally may change. There are bills in both the House and the Senate to change that. And here's why it's important. Right now, you play the Aerosmith ballad, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, songwriter Diane Warren gets some coin, but Tyler Perry, Tyler Perry, um, Aerosmith and the other guys in the band, they don't yeah. get any. They don't get anything. Steven Tyler. The record label, Columbia, doesn't get anything. Nothing. Right, it's Steven Tyler, not Tyler Berry. And so that's crazy. The, the people who put the soundtrack to Armageddon, they don't get anything. And that needs to change and that will change. And if it does change, 
That's going to be a big change in how you value radio stations. Terrestrial radio stations are big money earners. And if this happens, they're going to have a big, huge new bill they got to pay every month. So suddenly your valuation for all those radio stations, that's going to change dramatically. This will not impact really small stations or independent stations. Like I was at a local public radio, public access station in Champaign-Urbana. They would still be able to get an annual blanket license for like $500. You can play all the music you want for $500 right. a year. Small stations that make below a certain level of revenue that aren't owned by big conglomerates and thus are pretending to be small when in fact they're part of a big syndicate, they also would get a really low fee or no fee at all. So this is only going to impact the vast majority of radio stations, which are really big, uh, but it will be a big change and it will really change the value of radio stations because guess what? You got a big new bill you got to pay every month. It's like you never had to pay your electric bill and now suddenly you do. Well, think about it. One of the biggest hits uh, of 10,000 Maniacs was Because the Night, right? But right, sure. Springsteen wrote it. Yeah. So, uh, so Well, I think, and also maybe uh, um, um, Patti Smith got a, got a co-write credit on it, I think. I think That's they, correct, they, yes. I think so. So yeah, so he and Patti Smith would get money, but uh, 10,000 Maniacs wouldn't have seen a penny all those years. That's why Elvis always wanted a cut of the, uh, of the songwriting. He's like, you want me to sing your song? I'm going to get a credit. Uh, and you know what? If you wanted to get a new Elvis song on the radio back in the day, you went to the radio station and said, hey, here, let me take you out to dinner. Here, you want some line of cocoa? Hey, let's go party. Here, here's a couple, you know, here's a little bag of cash. But payola was supposed to be a thing of the past. But Billboard has a new story about that. Uh, it's an excellent story uh, by Elias Light in Billboard. And it talks about how payola is still a problem to this day. And indie labels just can't compete. Radio stations say, oh, we don't decide what to play on our station. you got to talk to this, this indie consultant, this independent radio promoter. He tells us what to play, and that's the person that says, you want to play? you got to give me $3,000. And they, they detail all the things. You want to try well, to get and, your song and it was, played on uh, trip? made against mm -hmm. the law. Well, it's always been against the yeah. law, yes, and it's against the law right now. But it seems really above board. You know, you want to get your song on AAA, you're gonna, it's going to cost you about thirty thousand. You want to do a campaign to get a song on alternative radio, forty to sixty thousand. Top forty, seventy thousand, more likely a hundred thousand and up. That's why you didn't get your song on the radio. But uh, but who are they paying? Are they paying the radio? They are paying these independent promoters, and so that's the cover. But I don't think this is legal either. It's a uh, uh, it, it's everybody speaks anonymously. It is illegal. It is wrong. Um, I don't know why the radio station benefits from that. I forget how the, all the ins and outs are of how it works, but it's a corrupt system and it's widespread. Everybody knows about it and it needs to change. And for some reason, it's not. And you can read more about it if you go to Billboard. We got a link in our show notes. It won't die. Paola will not die no matter what happens. But you know what? Mm -hmm. I do know at least one of the people that died this week. That's right. Who is that? Louise Fletcher. Oh, the actress and Oscar winner Louise Fletcher. She died at 88. And of course, uh, she had a good career. She worked in episodic TV, made some movies. She had a good role in Robert Altman's Thieves Like Us in the early 70s. That caught the eye of director Milos Forman, who was trying to cast One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a, 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 a passion project of Michael Douglas. His dad, Kirk Douglas, loved the book, optioned it, took it to Broadway, had a huge success, and nobody would make it into a movie. Nobody. He couldn't get it to happen. His son, Michael, 
stepped away from the streets of San Francisco. His big Berg producing project, his first, first big project, he made it happen, obviously, to massive success. But they were looking for someone who could hold their own opposite Jack Nicholson. And Milos Forman said, that's the girl, Louise Fletcher. She got the role. She created one of cinema's all-time great villains with the cold bureaucratic nurse Ratchet. And very memorably, when she won the Oscar, she signed part of her acceptance speech to her deaf parents, who raised her right here in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, she had other good roles on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Emmy nominations for her turns on Picket Fences and Jonah of Arcadia. Her best recent role was probably the meth-cooking mama of William H. Macy in the TV series Shameless on Showtime. And she told this good story. She said she was backstage at the Oscars. They're all high in success. And Milos Forman said, now we'll all make flops. <laughs> and she said he was right. He directed Ragtime. Jack Nicholson did the Missouri Breaks. And Louise Fletcher started Exorcist to the Heretic. That's Czech prophecy, she said. It's a good story, but it's not quite true. Before he made the ragtime, Milos Forman made the film Hair, which was not good, but did make money. So tell me, how do you know Louise Fletcher? She was a client of Don Buckwald and Associates, the ah. uh, yeah, well-known uh, talent agency, before uh, the, the big agencies kind of took everybody. And of course, if you were with Don Buckwald, uh, you know, your, your career wasn't necessarily, you, you weren't an A-list star. Howard Stern was his biggest client to give you some sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and Vince Vaughn was a client until, you know, he, he became, became too big. <laughs> yeah. Ryan Filippi, for instance, was a client. It was always just a matter of time before a client would, if they became sec successful, leave. And that's exactly what, uh, what would happen. But Louise Fletcher, uh, it was, like that was the, this particular agent who uh, shall remain nameless kept saying, you know, I've, I represent Academy award winning actors and actresses. First of all, we were like, okay, there's only one, okay, <laughs> it's an actress, and, uh, you know, that was quite some time ago. That was over 25 years ago, so let's... <laughs> I'm an award-winning writer. Sure, I won that award in college, but by God, I'm still going to say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that, that's, that's cool. So, uh, did you ever meet her? Yeah, you know, it was definitely, it was hard to, to get her jobs, you know? She was a woman of a certain age at that point, and so she was playing certain roles. And mm -hmm. by the way, I think every woman has that problem. So you're sexist. Okay, good to know. Um, but why do they do that? If you're, if you're a hot property, can't your agent grow with you? Can't, I've, never, I've always felt poorly about people. Like, I really look down on people whose agent gets them to a certain level and then they walk away from them. I'm I've like, always really? felt the same You've way. You've got to be with CAA. It's like, they were there for you. They helped. They got you to where you are. Surely they can continue to grow with you. Everybody wants you. You don't need the access that CAA can provide as such because you've got all the heat. So I, I've never understood that. I'd rather be the most important client for an agent rather than one of 100. Yeah, and that's a lot of it has to do with access. Like, what? When are you hearing about a role? Oh, after everybody else has been cast already. Okay, well, over at CA, you know, one agent gets a call for Tom Cruise, and everybody knows the movie's being made. Was it Harrison Ford who never uh, had never an agent? had an agent? That's think, my kind of guy. He just had a lawyer who looked over his yes. contracts. And I think he finally did get an agent or a manager. For a long yeah. time. I don't think he had either. Good for him. Anyway, uh, other people have died. Writer Hilary Mantle died at the age of 70. She was acclaimed. Late in life, she was best-selling. She had a good career with excellent reviews, but it was the last years of her life when she exploded. Her trilogy of novels about Thomas Cromwell became a sensation. 
Uh, people say it set new standards for historical fiction. It reframed Cromwell as the villain, as he was portrayed in the play A Man for All Seasons, too, if not the hero, at least a sympathetic player. He moved heaven and earth so Henry VIII could divorce his wife and marry another woman, all in search of a male heir that never came. Henry VIII had six wives and all, as the new musical tells you, and it was all due to Cromwell who fell out of favor, as fixers sometimes do. Anne Boleyn, not a fan of him. Now, the 2009 novel Wolf Hall was a massive worldwide bestseller with reviews to match. It's a great book. Uh, two more books followed, uh, both slightly not as great, but they were very, very good and well worth reading. Uh, there were play adaptations, TV miniseries. She became the first British writer and the first woman to win two Booker Prizes. Uh, yeah. That's the most acclaimed award for an individual novel in the Western world, I would say. She's also the only writer to win the Booker with back-to-back -back novels. Not that she won two years in a row, but she wrote a book and won the Booker. Then she wrote another book and won the Booker again. So the last 13 years of her life were very fine indeed. Good for her. Well, and I heard her described uh, on, on NPR as uh, she was either an author you had no idea about or you were passionately in love with. With all of well, her writing. Well, I, at this stage, she was very well known, for yeah. sure. Well, and finally, two musical figures died. Yeah. Doobie Brothers drummer John Hartman died at 72, and jazz saxophonist Pharaoh Sanders died at 81. Uh, John Hartman was one of the founding members of the Doobies. Uh, he was one of two drummers. They had two drummers throughout the 70s. That's their big period of artistic and commercial success. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If you play their hits, like Listen to the Music and What a Fool Believes, which is a great song, you're listening to John Hartman. And jazz lost a towering talent with the death of saxophonist Pharaoh Sanders. This was very sad for me. He was dubbed Pharaoh by the eccentric legend Sun Ra. That's a crazy person. And it's just one of the many people he played with. He began playing with Sun Ra. Then he moved on to John Coltrane during that artist's spiritual albums era. Uh, then he played with McCoy Tyner, Alice Coltrane, Stanley Clark, a lot of other people. And he released about 30 solo albums. He slowed down in the 90s. I really wasn't aware of him, but he had one brilliant swan song left in him. In 2021, he collaborated with the British electronic artist Floating Points and the London Symphony Orchestra on the album Promises. It's a gorgeous, meditative, searching, brilliant album. And now that he's gone, it immediately becomes one of the great final artistic statements in popular music. There, I said it. And it was my pick for the best album of 2021. So if, like me, you discovered him for the first time in 2021, and I hope you did, uh, it's a sad day. But what a great way to go out. Well, okay. So I, I of course, being a huge jazz fan, knew about uh, Pharaoh Sanders. And he played with Coltrane, right? You, you mentioned you played with Coltrane. Yep. He played on the Love Supreme tour. If that's no, 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 no. Not on the album. Supreme. Not on the album. Not on no. the album. He played uh, when they toured, and after that album, he was with them. Uh, and here's the thing. So I'm telling my 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 daughter about this, and she's just like, "Why are you telling me this?" I'm like, "Look, he was he was a guy. His his uh, the his he had like lots of ambient." recordings his most famous recording is 33 minutes long okay and it had to be cut across two albums and or two two different uh, sides of two the, sides two sides of yes, the album back in the lp era yep uh and the creator has a master plan it's 33 minutes long okay and here's the the master plan he always like he one of his last interviews with la times they were like so you know do you what do you mean by the creator has a master plan and he answered by saying you know the creator has got a master plan 
Like he was so <laughs> he was so hip, you know. Uh, and so he really his his music was very you know ambient, as I mentioned. So he dies on Saturday, I believe, and that was John Coltrane's birthday. Yes, not just John Coltrane's birthday, however. That's the day the music. It's actually, he died on a Friday. He died on uh, September 23rd. And that's the day the music was born, as I like to call it. September 23rd is the birthday of John Coltrane, Annie DeFranco, Bruce Springsteen, and Ray Charles. That's a hell of a lineup. Wow. Well, he, uh, you know, if you get a chance to listen to some of his music, it's, it's really good. And then that Floating uh, Points album is really good. Yeah, it is. It's called Promises, and it's excellent. We've got a link in our show notes to my best albums of that year and my best albums of all time list if you want to catch up on some other great stuff. And, you know, you want to catch up on us. We're always here. That's true. But you know what? So that you don't miss an episode, definitely subscribe to us on iTunes, the Google Podcast Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can usually find us. And if you can't, do let us know. You can write to us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. Now that information, those ways to subscribe to us and links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found, as Michael mentioned, on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT, and they can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's celluloidjunkie.com. I'm signing up for the CJ Summit. Okay, I think you have to go to cjcinemasummit.com. Oh, that's why I can't find anything. Yes. Okay. Uh, yes, that that's something we're we're working on. Uh, that's <laughs> it's it's an issue. That's for sure. You know, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on on that website, you could probably go to parade.com or michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work, as Michael mentioned, can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs>